You are tuning into Pro Bono Perspectives, live from Brooklyn, where the city never sleeps and purpose is more than just a buzzword. Pro Bono Perspectives brings together leaders that have traveled across sectors, industries, and experiences on their path to creating change for the communities in which they live and work. And I'm your host, Danielle Holly, CEO of Common Impact, a national nonprofit that designs skills-based volunteer programs that amplify the impact of social change organizations by harnessing the talents and the skills of private sector employees. I am lucky enough to cross paths with these leaders every day through my work with Common Impact and can't wait to bring you behind the scenes to share their stories. Hi, everyone. Today, I am joined by researcher and advisor Derek Feldman, who has more than 20 years of experience in social issue campaigns, movement building and marketing, and helping companies leverage their assets to create positive change. Derek right now is the managing director of Ad Council Edge Influence SG and its cause and social influence initiative. He is also the author of several books on social movements and actually has a new book coming out this July called The Corporate Social Mind. Today, we'll talk about the way different generations engage with social causes, how to tell when a company is authentically supporting a social cause and what's just good marketing. And he tells us what he thinks is in store for brand engagement in social issues in the context of COVID-19. Hi, Derek. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Thank you. So before we get into all of the amazing work that you're doing and um, with the list of work that you're doing, I don't know how and when you sleep, uh, but maybe we'll ask you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You've had a fascinating and really entrepreneurial career path working at founding social impact organizations, launching conferences, writing books, research. Tell us about your journey. What got you on this social impact career and and what were the steps along the way? Yeah, so I I remember having this conversation or at least uh, um, with a couple of students, I I went to the School of Philanthropy and one time the Dean there said to me, what's the through line to all of this stuff you've ever done? And sometimes I I even have to, uh, as I went back and I've kind of looked at it myself, there's always been sort of this major, major thing that I've been interested in. And that essentially is, why and how young people, primarily those in their more formative years, 18 to 30, kind of get involved in social issues. And and it really goes back to uh, my time kind of not growing up, which most people would say, oh, I remember this fantastic time growing up and I was this big volunteer and fundraiser and all that other stuff. And none of that really happened for me growing up. I was actually probably the quite opposite. My my parents were active in social issues, but they weren't sort of those big activists you would hear about all the time. Um, what what really happened is that I, I went to um, I went to undergrad in in a school in Missouri, and I out of a really really great lucky opportunity, I became a governor's intern in the state of Illinois. And I remember doing this governor's internship program, and part of me was saying, "Wow, you know, this is the side of politics," but at the same time, it was the side of social issues, right? You were being exposed to what people in Chicago thought versus people in rural communities and and so on. And after that experience, I went to to the School of Philanthropy to get my graduate degrees. 
And I worked for a program called Learning to Give. And that program set up by the Kellogg Foundation, funded by them primarily, was to, was to really bring philanthropy and service into schools. And this was in the 2000s, like early 2000s. And so I've always had this intrigue with those who are just getting started in the social space, social issue space. So whether that's peers and friends and so forth. Um, and, and my intrigue has always been, and it's kind of funny because maybe you do this too. You look at why your friends and family do what they do for causes. And you're like, now why on earth would you give that money there? Or why would you do that? So I've always been like wondering that because as I watched my own friends go through that, maybe I was trying to be a little bit observant and why they participated in things and trying to come up in my head with the reasons why. And then when I would ask them, they would be like, no, I just don't even remember why I did it. I'd be so disappointed, right? Because I had this whole concoction in my head. But, um, but I've always sort of sat at this, this sort of inquisitive phase as to why people in that age demographic get involved in these social issues. And, and then does it really stick and stay around uh, over time? So everything I've ever done has sort of been around this central theme of getting at why young people get involved with social issues and what movements look like from that perspective and so forth. So whether that's events or books or anything else, it kind of kind of all comes down to that centered foundation for me. And one of the things that we've heard as a drumbeat is that the quote unquote younger generation, which used to be millennials, um, now Gen Z, and I, I think now there's even a generation alpha that comes after that we're we're going back <laughs> to the beginning of the alphabet um one of the things that you've heard is that there is a social consciousness that is baked into this generation right this this upcoming workforce and the current workforce that just wants to have social impact as part of their day job and thinks much less about work and life as separate things and components um, but really as bleeding into each other as and the whole individual. And I know that COVID-19 has changed our context for everything. And you just created a three-page report this spring to track young Americans' actions related to COVID-19. And curious what that looks like, knowing that in general, young folks are very in tune to society. What are they doing in the context of COVID-19 now? Yeah. And before I talk about that, I think it might help too, especially for those that are listening, because because you brought you brought something up at the beginning that I think is so important to understand why young people are socially conscious potentially and, and what we see. Um, and, and your boomer listeners and your Gen Xers are gonna love this. So this is just specifically for them for sure. And and that is is that while millennials and younger gener generations get a lot of credit for being socially conscious. They just didn't wake up one day and said, you know what, I'm going to go and do a rally and I'm going to go and, and get these rights and do all these other things. I mean, a lot of the things that we see in millennials as well as in our Gen Zers and our forthcoming Gen Alpha. Uh, yeah, it is quite funny. We're getting back to the upfront of the alphabet there. Um, is that is that this is learned and practiced from what they have seen and observed from other generations. And it's unfortunate because we don't necessarily give a lot of credit to those boomers or, or Xers in particular, who were at the forefront of introducing things like more work-life balance. Millennials and others were just reinforcing positions that were already started to, to be present in workplaces. And they were starting to get uh, sort of exposed to social issues 
through platforms that, you know, quite honestly, they just didn't exist before as well. And so while they're sort of growing up in their more formative years, are exposed to more social issues and social consciousness than ever before, we do have to give some credit to the previous generations who laid some of that foundation to get it to where it is today. So now on to COVID in particular. Um, it is interesting because for every, for the last, uh, you know, more than a decade now, I have been looking at how young Americans get involved in social issues and primarily those 18 to 30. And this year we did, we had to go back in because COVID was happening. I, I remember when I was leaving New York City and I, I was saying, boy, this is an interesting thing that's happening. We need to understand that, how it's going to affect young Americans participation because that's what we do every day. And in that first week, this was the week when all the announcements of the shutdowns were starting to occur. We, we started to look at how young Americans were not just, not just sort of preventing the spread themselves, but also what they were doing to support others. And one key thing that's quite interesting that, that kind of gets at some of the elements you asked before is around supporting others and how we have really broadened now more than ever in our history what we would consider that support in philanthropy, which traditionally was charitable giving and volunteerism. And through the years and all the studies I've done, we have continued to really broaden out what it means to really help another person. The things that consciously and subconsciously happen by a population that will never get registered on any sort of benchmark or anything else. Not because it's, it's, it's not something that we want to measure, it's just something that's really hard. So those small acts you do at the grocery store sometimes to give a penny or two to round up, or even the support that you give towards non-philanthropic things that won't be counted in the field uh, as well, such as when a friend does a GoFundMe page or anything else. And what was very, very key in this round of research is, is that one of the major things that young people uh, were performing in support of others is to buy products, goods, and services from local business to support those families and the people behind it. I mean, imagine how that we're taking the consumer marketplace as our method to support, to, to support other people by getting their products, goods, and services, where historically that would have been replaced by donating funds or volunteering or anything else. This just continues the wave that we had seen in the last decade through our research, that young Americans don't sort of operate in these silos when it comes to helping others. And the sectors that we have have been sort of broken down, whether that through church or whether it's through companies or whether that's just directly through purchasing products or goods. It's no longer a, if you want to help somebody who has cancer, that you're going to just donate to the American Cancer Society but rather find alternative methods to make it as direct as possible. And that fundamentally is changing the way that young Americans are engaging with social issues, both now in COVID, and it will be even more extensive as we go forward. And how do you think about the ways that companies are engaging when we pull up from the individual level to companies as actors, you know, very similarly following that same uh, opening of work and life and focusing on social impact. When I think about it, you know, 20 years ago, companies, corporate social responsibility was very much a compliance or a marketing function and more and more companies mm -hmm. started to 
really embrace the, the for-purpose business and making sure that their products and their services and their operations, their supply chains are benefiting society, not just the bottom line. And curious um, how you see that trajectory and, and what COVID has done in the very you know recent weeks to that dynamic. Yeah, one of the one of the key things I talk about with the companies I work with and and others is that we have to make a choice sometimes as brands and as companies to decide what kind of voice we want to have with social issues, and that voice doesn't always have to be the leader on the social issue, but it does have to be a listening voice and a contributing voice on those social issues primarily. And what I mean by that is our first thing that we should be doing is understanding how things like COVID truly affect our consumers and the people that we have in our close sort of environment, which includes our employees and our stakeholders and so forth. We have to understand that if we have an expectation that they continue to purchase and, and get involved in the things that we produce as a company, that fully understanding the situations in which they're in would garner a particular response. Otherwise, it's going to seem both inauthentic and quite honestly out of touch if they didn't. Um, then the second thing that as we look at it is it isn't necessarily a responsible thing to do. It's both an expectation at this at this point. I mean, for somebody not to look at the environment today, you, you know, you're going to have a whole demographic of the population probably up in arms, you know, where we have been. So culturally, we've moved from the regulatory to some of that cultural behavioral side that we have an expectation to see. Now, the real question becomes is how deep does that truly go across all functional teams and within supply chains and beyond? And what we mean by that is that that really a company expresses, and this is something I write about in the new book that I have coming out, which is that the company has to have a corporate social mindset constantly which means that when we design products, goods, and services, that we don't wait till those are produced and go into market, but that we bring society in at the beginning to help understand, both by listening how our products, services, and goods not only add value to their own lives, but don't deter value as well. And at the same time, that we ensure that through our big listening environments, as we do at the early stages of innovation, Essentially, we'll actually make better products as outcomes of that, not only because we truly understand the impacts of that product, but at the same time, we're able to also impact society more positively as well. So it, it's no longer a regulatory, it's a practice of innovation. And when we take it out of the category of this is what we expect or it's regulatory, then we move it more towards we want to define better innovations and solutions for society. It means we invite society in to give us the input that's necessary to make that contribution impactful in the end. So I think we're in a different position when it comes internally to the culture and the mindset and how we approach the goods and services that we produce than rather where we were in the past. Don't get me wrong, that we needed the past to kind of move ourselves to where we got to get to, right? As I mentioned earlier, from boomers and Xers getting credit to where millennials are now. I mean, the first regulatory stuff let, you know, really helped us to get going. But now we have really, really learned a little bit further about how we make this a cultural shift away from we have to do it to it's better for us that we do this. And how do you, in that context, separate the wheat from the chaff, right? I mean, I'd say every company that I 
come into contact with is doing something in the social good space is doing has some level of corporate social responsibility and there are there's a lot of variability in terms of how much is a real and really integrated into culture and process and systems and how much is still marketing do you have when you're when you're working with companies or you're thinking about it from a consumer or an employee perspective how do you really suss out where the meaningful work is happening yeah i um i, I always uh i always look at especially when it comes to campaign work right uh i don't know how many times and i bet you have done this too where some agency or somebody else is working on a social issue campaign and you're like this seems a little off. And the reason it seems off, quite quite frankly, is because there is not an established, what we would normally call sort of a, a knowledge attitude behavior change model behind it. And when I ask a few questions such as, what do consumers truly, truly know about this issue? Because the attitude they have towards it is an expression of the knowledge and their behavior, positive or negative, is an expression of their attitude, which is linked to the knowledge, and how are we contributing positively to that sort of behavior change? Not with the expectation that 50,000 lives are solved tomorrow or changed tomorrow, but rather that a campaign contributes positively towards behavior change in some way, shape, or form. And that behavior change could be simply with our employees. You know, how do we want them? How do we help them be more successful? What do they truly know? What's their current attitude towards it? And what is the, the behavior that's reflective of those two things? And so I quickly assess it first and foremost from that. And then after I sort of understand what the intention is, and sometimes, <laughs> as you know, there is really no other intention other than it'd be good to align with a cause, which unfortunately, you know, where that goes if that happens. Right. Um, and we can start to assess it out really easily. Then my next question comes in from there is, what is the milestone that we need to try to achieve? And the challenge for most companies as they start to look at milestones is this is where it gets really hard. Uh, and it's hard because while we wanna talk in communication and sometimes in marketing that we're here to solve the world or save whatever, is that in reality, we are, if we truly are working from a, what are we contributing to the knowledge, attitude, and behavior on this issue, we should be able to set milestones for the campaign or for the efforts that we have that are not unrealistic, but rather contribute to others. You know, I'm working with two companies right now. And in, that, in those conversations, I sit down between the company leaders and some of the biggest stakeholders in that social issue. And I say, if the company was to do X, Y, Z, short or brief milestones, or at least get here, Will that contribute to this social issue and the work that you're doing? It's that kind of conversation that has to happen before just launching something. And then you become much more articulate with what we want to accomplish from knowledge, attitude, behavior, even the milestones with the general public. And unfortunately, given our fast-paced world, that, that exercise is usually not expressed as much. And quite honestly, results tend to show from it. So you mentioned your book before, which is The Corporate Social Mind, and that comes out in July in just a couple of weeks. And in that, you share some stories of when this looks real, right? You interviewed executives from leading companies like IBM, Aerie. Share with us some of the bright spots that you've seen. 
Yeah, you know, I, I look at, say, Aerie um, in particular, and Jennifer Foyle, who's the, the head of Aerie, talks about those early days in moving into looking at women issues in particular, especially when it comes to body image. I mean, Aerie was at the forefront of not touching up models and doing a lot of the things that they have done for their teen audiences overall at that brand, which is a part of the American Eagle brand. And what I, you know, what we really wanted to get down into because because they've been they've been referenced a lot and in, in things, but what were the early days like? What were the challenges of talking to fellow departments and saying, you know, we're gonna we're gonna really focus on this social issue because this is what our consumers are dealing with. This is a place where they went out and they were understanding that not every consumer is alike. Not every um, teen uh, girl and, and, and even their younger adult audience is, is dealing with body images the same way as others are. And two is how do we reflect that in our products and our services and then how we use our own platform overall. So that takes a holistic mindset, and that includes things like using models who have been touched up, different types of models as well, as to already using their platform to educate and inform and the investments that they have made uh, too as well, including when you come into their brands and their stores where they had educational offerings there, point of sale education uh, pieces, using in all different kinds of influencers that to get out there that this is this is okay, we are not that brand that expects the same across all different types of, of people. That's, that's the kind of thing where listening effectively, going to those key stakeholders that are in that space and understanding where the issue currently is and where, where they can contribute positively to it before really just moving out and saying, you know what, this is what we're taking on because we need to but rather we want to because this is appropriate for our consumers and ourselves from there. So I look at them and the work that they have done is really a bright spot in terms of taking a full mindset of not just doing it for marketing, but changing product, changing different elements to make sure that they're really embracing it holistically. And we're recording this in Mental Health Awareness Month. And one of the things that feels particularly cute right now in COVID but in general, in this social media environment that our young people are growing up in and the airbrush perfection that we have gotten used to seeing, that a campaign like that clearly has brand building effects, but it's just such a breath of fresh air from what we're feeding our young people and particularly how we're asking girls to develop and grow so um, it's very powerful when you think about the human element of it outside of, you know, g generally how brand alignment, how brand strategy aligns to some of the social impact, quote unquote, causes. Yeah. And, and I would say one other thing that I, I continue to notice in social issue marketing campaigns and not with just some of the brands that I've been involved with with others, but I always talk about this with the agencies and that, that uh, the brands ask, hey, Derek, can you sit down with the agency that's just developed this and give them some insight? One of the things that I always tell them is, you know, I just saw your piece and I don't know who this is about because to me, it doesn't really tell the story of the American youth that I know. You know, and, and one thing that I often say to them is just so you know, uh, um, there's 30% that are Hispanic and Latino and and that the populations of you know, people of color and diverse backgrounds, they have these kinds of expectations. They, they have all of this stuff when it comes to social issues. And I said, so now I'm trying to level set with what you're about ready to release, which creatively looks amazing. 
but it feels like you're talking to a smaller segment of the overly engaged and overly involved sort of part of society of a young the younger population and that's a default that's so easy to be a part of and and brands who you know sometimes work with agencies in this way need to help them understand that too as well and I, we always say in that piece is did we honestly if we look ourselves in the mirror did we truly truly tell the story of the American youth in this. And sometimes I don't see that uh, as well. Mm. And, and that's a really hard one to kind of have the humbleness and say, you know what, the reason this didn't hit it is not because it's not a great story. It's just not the story of the American youth now. I, I remind brands and I remind others, and you, you mentioned authenticity, it just feels so real. And part of that realness is that that you know, not everybody has made decisions on social issues. Not every social issue is a black and white. Right. You know, I have talked to I have talked to youth who are in Kentucky who have coal families who are still torn about the environmental thing, or who grew up in families where, say, LGBTQ is taught differently, or they were you know they learned something different from parents and others. You know, the vast majority of some young people are still trying to work out in their heads what those decisions are with social issues in themselves even, and being comfortable in themselves while they're going through this process. Those brands that recognize that true situation that any American public is going through, or whether it's youth or not, because they're listening, quite honestly, and they truly have their pulse on, the, on their consumer base, will, will not make those missteps. I find that when they make the missteps, they've often taken a smaller niched view of a particular aspect of the demographic and use that as their story rather than what most of the younger population is dealing with. Well, and so much of what I've discovered through Common Impact's work is that, yes, it's not black and white. And also it's not nearly as politicized or as extreme no. <laughs> as we would no. mean in headlines, right? I mean, um, there's just a lot more that connects us than divides us. And it's, you would never know it. No. <laughs> uh, you open up the, the times in the morning or whatever it is you're, you're reading. And it's just, um, it gives me hope when I talk to folks and have those stories that are shared outside of the different bubbles that we all operate in. And what you're saying very much resonates with that. Yeah. And, and I would say too, to kind of follow up with that, is that it works on both ends, right? It's not politicized as much in the negative and not everybody's out there fighting to join a march protest in a rally. And, and that kind of gets back to the earlier part of that we were kind of talking about in some of this about other generations and so forth. You know, in our studies, when you're pooling, say, you know, this week I'll be releasing data on 1,100 young Americans, and we've been doing this for every 30 days. When you look at that and all of the research I have ever done, while things like marches and rallies, whether it be March for Lives or the Sun Sunrise Movement or Extinction Rebellion, all those other extinctions in the UK, but if you look at all of these movements, and if you are really a, um, if you are really sort of fluent in the news media, you would think that everybody is ready to march and rally in a minute. But when you actually look at a broad-based sense of the American youth population, you realize that that's not actually the case going on, that, that there are some that are pro-social issues, 
but they're not necessarily taking the high expectation or result of showing up and doing those kinds of things. And so sometimes it, it brings itself into our marketing efforts, our communication efforts, and sometimes even our strategies. Because if you're in the know and you read certain media and you read certain other things, you get an expectation that everybody is similar in that mentality. And it really isn't. So if you were to have a crystal ball, bring, bring us there. <laughs> what do you predict for the social impact landscape in the future? Has the coronavirus pandemic changed that at all? Does it still look the same? What does it look like for you? I think the next three months in particular, you know, today is May 18th. And the, the next three months in particular is when brands, wh whether they're going to have a lot of trust and affinity with their audiences or not. And the reason I say that is because as brands begin to bring consumers back to whether it's in stores or whether it's to their experiences, restaurants, whatever that looks like, they're going to look towards those brands to do the right thing, to make them feel safe, to make them and, and participate in things in which that they can, you know, buy consumer goods and products in an environment where, you know, some of that experience may not always be where it was, but at least it's in a safe environment which they can enjoy. Uh, at this time. And so I think the next three months, in particular, three to six months, will be the case where this will be either make or break. And, and the thing will be is how good will the brands be in terms of listening to their consumers and truly understanding the challenges and stuff? Because then I know they're innovative enough to create ways to make what they do or make delivered possible. I think after that, and, and even in now too, it's it's the way that these brands are that these brands will go out not only just communicate those things but put some actions behind this this will fundamentally change the way that we interact with one another um for a while you know i i, I uh, will it be back to where it is i can't imagine that at this point you know because we're fairly conscious of what's going on right now and and because everybody is in a stay at home and to a certain situation now it's starting to reopen but at this point, too, brands will have to be very socially conscious and minded as they set forward in business. And if you didn't have those feedback mechanisms and if you didn't have the pulse on what is truly going on with the consumer base and the public with where you're going to try to do business, it's going to be a very difficult position for you right now just to kind of launch things and do stuff as you normally would in an environment that is cautious overall. And so... I think from there, I can't imagine a brand being successful without having some sort of corporate social mindset going forward, to be honest, because it's going, the consumer base is going to demand that to feel trusted enough in order to frequent and participate in those business outlets. From the social issue side um, and, and cause side, I think that this is definitely going to expose weaknesses in our systems and where they have been. I'm excited that young people and others can sort of band together and come up with new ways to do that. I've also, you know, I think this is also looked at where we do have weaknesses where digital technology supports, but can't replace the things that we have historically done. And that we, <laughs> that while some may have had dreams of the full replacement, I think we all would say, and especially as someone right now who has had nine and 11 year old homeschooling at home would realize how amazing those teachers and that in-person opportunity to learn is. And while we are doing our best, as well as the teachers are going above and beyond, that supplementing and replacing is probably not the right strategy, but finding a more balance between the two is. 
Well, I think that last point that you hit on is so important that this has exposed the weaknesses in our society and or the 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 social issues that companies are starting to rally behind and really personalizing them. And so, you know, the access to technology and the deepening digital divide and what that means for students who can no longer access education versus those who are accessing a virtual environment for the men and women who are both home and taking care of young kids and realizing how hard childcare is and what an important part of our economic engine that is and how we're underpaying our childcare professionals. Um, and, you know, those are just the two that immediately jump to mind, but it, it has just exposed the fault lines that we have in our society because it's a, such a universal experience, but one that people are feeling differently because of the inequities that are in our society. So I think you're exactly right. I think companies are going to have to have a pro-social issue, a pro-people, pro-purpose brand mm-hmm. forward in order to survive. One, one other thing I would mention is that is uh, I have been excited as well as um, astonished by some of the creativity coming out of the causes. And not just arts and culture causes, but all kinds of causes who quite honestly, probably a lot of the things they're doing right now, we're always on the back burner, right? Like they, these were things that it was always that maybe we'll get to it someday. It's not as important. I have found new ways to do so many things with causes than ever before. And I think that there's tons of innovation happening there. I'm excited to see which comes out of it in the end. As I was saying to a large association group, I was doing a webinar with them and I said, now more than ever, you can probably launch something and get a little bit of a pass, you know, assuming that you're not putting tons of resources into something that launches. But, you know, why not at this point experiment with your models to try to make them better and decide which ones really are worthy of not replacing, but supporting the other work when you come out of this on the other side. So for the corporate professionals that are listening to this podcast, where would you tell them to start? What would be either the first piece of advice or the first resource that you would direct them to? My first piece of advice is you have to spend time with whoever you're trying to help. And that is, it sounds so basic, but when I work with brand professionals or company professionals, I even remember taking a group of of a brand team out to actually visit with young people. And like say, not, not the young people who were recruited to specifically be with the brand people who were there, who were already high achieving and everything else, but actually the communities where their products were so that they truly understand that. In order to make any initiative policy campaign or anything, you do have to spend time with people that you're truly trying to reach. And not just in research, but actually some FaceTime uh, as well. And in virtual FaceTime, probably right now. The second thing is whether, you know, hopefully you'll take a look at the cause of social influence research where you can see what people are really doing with social issues is balance what you read and hear about young people with the real actions that's occurring. You know, I think that that is an important thing to be open-minded when it comes to your own bias and your own place when you look at sort of populations you're trying to help and don't make as much quick assumptions that everybody sort of fits into a nice, easily targeted demographic when you're trying to do something. Because as we had talked about, it doesn't really work out that way. It's a little bit more complicated and a little bit more non-politicized. Sort of everybody's kind of in the middle at times. And the last thing that I would say, too, is you don't have to have the leading voice on a social issue. 
just being at the table and having the brand be present goes a lot goes a lot now deciding when to have that voice and how you do that is going to be up to how well you listened you know how much your your company can offer in terms of non-financial financial and all different kinds of assets for social impact and so it will make that time when you do decide to use that voice in a much heavier hand that you have what you want to really impact and you'll be able to say that confidently and with the real story that goes on from there so those are probably my three things i would mention for you that's great thank you and with this podcast we'll share around all of the resources and the reports you've recently released so that folks have access to that we haven't answered the question of whether you sleep but curious <laughs> your you're not an 11 year old that you're homeschooling so i imagine your day looks a little different now than it used to just a couple of weeks ago but what, what's the best part of your day yeah so you're right um this this has definitely changed normally i'm in the new york area you know starting the days early as well my normal day starts early and and because i do some work at at Oxford, I lead a, a research initiative called Movement of Movements um, with a colleague, Charmaine, and and um, I have some uh, European-based clients and brands that I work with. So I usually start my day kind of learning globally, quite honestly, and then and then all my clients in the U.S. start to wake up, and we we start working on things together. Um, I think the best part of my day is quite honestly at the end, where I look at and you have to spend 15 minutes, just 15 minutes, just kind of looking through the, your notebook and saying, okay, I think, uh, I think I truly understand what, what today was about. And that part to me is always the rewarding 15 minutes at the end of the day. And sometimes I do that with just a nice <laughs> espresso at the end of the day where I'm just sitting there reading and, and so forth. Um, but, but I cherish that 15 minutes where it's just me looking past on this day uh, myself, a, a true reflection moment. Right. Amazing. And so important to have that to ground yourself. And I think we all can take a note on that because particularly in this moment, we're all just doing, especially those in the, the social good and the social sector, it's, it's really intense work right now. And you're constantly thinking about how you can support and help others. And so good to ground yourself in what you care about and what you've done. Thank you so much, Derek, for for joining us today and, and giving us just a peek into all of the work that you're doing. We'll share that out with our guests and appreciate you giving us a sense of where we've been and where we're going. Well, thank you. I, it's been a pleasure. And we'll talk again. Thanks so much for listening to Pro Bono Perspectives today. If you like our show and want to learn more, check out our website at commonimpact.org. Leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues about us. Tune in to our upcoming episodes to hear from everyday leaders using their skills to help their communities.